also been a few other robberies, probably not as well publicized. Uh, but a few country church buildings have gotten broken into, like this one, back in February, and robbed. And in this incident in February, um, as this building was robbed, the headline put it like this, a valuable cross was stolen from this church. A valuable cross stolen. It's value? Well, as it turns out, it was valuable, yes. But one member of the parish offered to buy another one. So if you think about it, it was very valuable, but replaceable. Expensive, and yet someone could put their hand in their pocket and put one back um, on the table of the front of the church. I wonder if, if Christians like us could sometimes see the cross representing Jesus' death a bit like this. Expensive, absolutely. Uh, um, valuable, certainly, at the top of our buildings, even in our logo, our songs, our Christian culture. But somehow, do you think we could still miss or forget or even sidestep away from its true value? Now, as you know, Mark is writing to Christians to help us understand the true identity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, why Jesus came and what that has to do with us. And so as we start chapter 14, there's really a new section here that will carry on all the way through until the end of Mark. And as you see, in a, in a matter of paragraphs time, Mark will narrate the death of Jesus. Now what we're going to see today in these opening paragraphs of chapter 14 is how Mark interweaves the plot against Jesus' life with an invitation to understand the value of his death. So watch how this is done. So there's a plot against Jesus' life interwoven with an invitation to understand the value of Jesus' death. So that's where these verses are headed. And you'll see that we'll, we'll see the plot and the value and then we'll see those two things again as we get to chapter, or to verse 25. Okay, so here, here's what we're up to. Firstly then, the plot against Jesus' life um, in the first two verses of chapter 14. Now, we've seen a few times in Mark one of the techniques he uses as a writer. Now, all good writers have their techniques, and Mark is no different. Here's what he's doing. He's arranging material to make a certain point, and we've called it before the Mark and the sandwich. Not to make us hungry, but to think about the fact that Mark is putting two bits of bread and a central filling to help us focus on a particular point, and he's doing that again here. Now, but this bread is pretty repulsive. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. It's the beginning of a plot against Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 by the Sanhedrin. Have a look. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Opposition is growing, spreading. And this chapter, which is in fact the longest chapter in Mark, will see that opposition spread further and wider. From this ruling council of Jews, to then the Roman rulers, and then the people at large. Here's a, a plot to arrest Jesus by stealth, sneaky. A way. We don't want to get in trouble with the people, but we'll find a way to get him. 
could lead to uproar. And so look what they seem to decide, verse 2. Let's not do it during the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. Let's not do that. We don't want to raise too many heckles. Jerusalem's population swole to probably three times its usual um, number during this uh, Passover festival. Though, though more shocking, I think, than these verses, this growing plot among the Sanhedrin, is the involvement of an insider, Judas Iscariot. Look down to verse 10, the other side of the bread. There's an insider. Judas was one of the twelve, Mark writes. He went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's such a cruel twist, isn't it? The opposition to, to kill Jesus will now involve the betrayal by one of his closest followers. And from the perspective of a growing number of people, including one of his own friends, Jesus' life, and we'll see his death, is undervalued, dismissed, plotted against, trying to snub him out. But in the middle of this plot, then, in the middle of this sandwich, there's something else to see. Have a look, then, from verses 3 to 9. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So you've got this plot going on, prominent leaders, but also an insider like Judas, a named insider. Notice how Mark gives us his name, Judas Iscariot. So you have this plot to kill Jesus. And then here comes forward someone, not named, a woman, with this expensive ointment, this nard, and she anoints Jesus. And what she's done could cost as much as a year's wages, 300 denarii. And if the denarii was one day's wages, well, 300, it's nearly a year of wages. And she scolded, verse 5. What an extravagant action. Could the poor not have benefited? What a waste. And yet, in this arrangement, we can't help but noticing the value, the value she's literally placed on Jesus' head. Do you see that? Look at the value this woman, this outsider, has placed on Jesus' head. Well, that's the second thing that is interwoven here, the value of Jesus' death. Jesus himself interprets her action, though, as an anointing connected to his death, and he defends what she's done. Look at verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. The 
It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The hypothetical. We can help the poor with that money, they say, standing in judgment. And Jesus rejects it. But look what he does. And, and no one who's a regular human leader could do this. Could they get away with it? He points to himself. He says, look what she is. She did what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. How audacious a statement. But this woman has seen what Jesus knows about himself. The incalculable value of this man, Jesus Christ, as he goes willingly and purposefully to his death. And all this set against a so-called disciple of Jesus, plotting to kill him, to get some money for it. Do you see the values in this passage? Will a disciple get some money for a dirty betrayal? Or will this outsider, this unnamed woman, express the true value of Jesus and his death by pouring this ointment on his head? Well, it's extraordinary. And it demands a response from us all reading this and hearing this. A response that demonstrates that has this gotten through to us on an all level? At a, at a level where we'll give everything to the man who will go to his death. It's interesting what Jesus says about the poor, isn't it? You know, religion will always champion the good cause, like the, the worthwhile providing for the poor. And it's not like Jesus is saying, no, no, don't give to the poor. That's not what he's saying. But, but stunningly what he is saying is that his death is more important than even this worthy cause. Perhaps that, perhaps that shocks you. How could Jesus say that? And you know, maybe this event even jarred with Judas Iscariot as he saw the waste, as he heard the claims of Jesus pointing to himself. Well, in any, in any case, he makes his way in the next scene to betray him. Well, thirdly here, it's Passover. We've noticed that already from verse 1. It was two days before the Passover. We know this is the time. Mark has, has given us this marker, marker here. But there's preparations underway. Um, now, what was Passover? Well, it's the annual marking of one of the most important, if not the most important events in Jewish history. When the Israelite slaves in Egypt marked their doorposts with the blood of a slain lamb. And the angel of death passed over their homes as people did what God told them to do. And this event, as you know, kick-started that rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And so the Passover is the backdrop here. And, and you can see how Mark records the purposefulness of Jesus during this time. Jesus instructs the disciples about how they'll share this Passover together. It will be like this, he says. Have a look at from verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room and where I meet the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. As Jesus sets out the, the Passover plan, 
he's also setting something else in motion. There's a Passover to be celebrated, but there's also God's sovereign plan. And we'll see it unfolding in these chapters. And there are echoes, if you were here a few weeks with us, um, a few weeks ago in, in chapter 11, as Jesus went into Jerusalem. There are echoes of that chapter 11, where Jesus sent someone ahead. The preparations, just as he had said. And so Jesus is on a mission to fulfill God's sovereign plan. Well, the disciples find things just as he told them. So despite the plot that we've seen, and the betrayal all underway, God is still sovereign. God is about his business. Jesus won't be taken unawares. He's already predicted that he'll die three times and rise again. In fact, it's those who had determined to kill Jesus who had decided not to do so during the feast. It's they're the ones that will have their plans changed. Isn't that interesting? They decided, well, let's not do it during the feast. It'll, it'll, it'll raise some fuss, verse 2. And yet, that's exactly how God had planned things. As Jesus lays out the events, and as Jesus prepares for Passover, we're about to see that God's sovereign plan will not be thwarted, even though people, humans, are still responsible. So we've already seen then that this plot, we've seen the value then of Jesus' death, so the plot against his life, the value of his death, and his preparation for Passover. Now Mark's going to bring us a second time to those two things, the plot and the value, before these verses are through. So have a look at part two then of the plot against Jesus' life from verse 17. And you'll see how these things are working together here. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say that to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would better better for that man if he had not been born. So the plot thickens, the plot against Jesus' life. But notice again God's sovereignty. Jesus knows what's about to take place. Verse 18. He's aware of the treachery and he announces it to his followers. And then they react saddened. The thought, was it me? Will I be the one? And Jesus' response demonstrates something that's that's always very carefully balanced in the Bible. And notice this, this is very important. You see, there's always God's sovereignty on one side, balanced carefully with human responsibility on the other. You see those two things here at work. God's sovereignty, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God is sovereign. It will be so as God says. And yet woe to that man. You're responsible for your actions. Judas Iscariot, the one who will betray Jesus. It would be, have been better for that man if he'd not been born. So those two things are always balanced in the Bible. In God's sovereign plan, Jesus will be killed, and yet the betrayer is still responsible. And it's as if Mark wants us to realize that all our actions where Jesus is concerned are very, very significant how we 
react to him, how we treat him, how we value him. For as we've already seen, and now again Mark highlights around the Passover table, there's incalculable value in Jesus' death. So here we're rounding to that again from verses 22 to 25. Part 2 then. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Take, this is my body, this is my blood, the, the covenant, this new agreement poured out for many. God's sovereign plan for many people. God's rescue plan. And around this table, you can imagine the raw emotion betrayal and then sacrifice this is a passover meal remember they're sharing the passover when god rescued his people and yet there sits in the middle of them jesus with his invitation to his followers to take bread and wine his body and blood in the middle of this commemoration of god's rescue and jesus says it's with me that god will rescue his people from their treasonous, broken lives by providing a willing Passover lamb. And that's me, Jesus says. I will be the one who will go. As all this is prepared, it will not take me by surprise. If you're a Christian, imagine for a moment just sitting at that table, knowing that even those closest to Jesus could be capable of the most awful treachery. It's terrible, isn't it? To be someone who would line up with Judas and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then eventually, as chapter 14 unfolds, the Romans and the people calling for the destruction of the one that Mark has highlighted as the rescuer, the Son of God. No, we can't line up with those who betray him. Instead, we need to see something else. We need to see the determination, the purpose of Jesus who will willingly go to his death. And to see that this death has incalculable value. It's more than giving to the poor. It's incalculable. No price can be put on it. Because, well, why? Because, as in Jesus' own words, this death, this sacrifice will start a new agreement. This will be God's rescue of people from their spiritual slavery, from death, from hell. And if we've been reading more closely, we'll start to see that un unfold. Now, as Christians, we'll line up with Jesus in gratitude for his death. And we'll take the bread and we'll take the cup. Here's two things before we finally unpack it. You see, look at that plot against Jesus' life. Well, it can't derail God's sovereign plan. It can't. And those involved will be responsible for their actions. And then look at this value of Jesus' death. It's so shockingly high. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and his sacrifice marks a new agreement for the salvation, the rescue of men. It's wonderful the way these things come together 
missed this, we've missed some of the most incredible things that God's ever revealed to us. If we walk away from this and say, that's replaceable with some other kind of religion or experience, it's not. What about us? Well, it's an invitation. Not just to, to see value. I mean, I've watched the Antiques Roadshow and I've watched that table and I've watched its owner nearly faint with 20,000 euro, whatever it's worth. So we could see the value in that, yet not do anything about it. Look at the invitation. Take and eat. Drink for ourselves. Be personally involved in what God has sovereignly done in giving his son for us. Are you personally involved? Have you taken this on for yourself? Or as time's gone on, you've sidestepped from the cross. It's just on the building, just part of the culture in the Psalms. But why don't you take it again this morning? We're not going to share the Lord's Supper this morning. We did last week and we will again. But would you take and eat and drink of this sacrifice? Christ given for us. The next song we're going to sing has this line, O oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. O oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Christ given for us. Well, as we respond, let's sing this song together. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God.